Uh, Jesus, thanks so much for um, this time together. Lord, we surrender our will and our way to you, Lord. Would you have your way with us as uh, we hang on to your promises, as we cling to you, uh, a God who sees. God, help us to uh, open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to your word. Um, Lord, this is an easy text for us. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would speak the gospel, the truth to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, Amen. So go ahead and open up your Bibles. Um, if you didn't grab one of these Bibles, these are awesome. They have, um, this is, they're in the back there. Um, if you brought your own Bible, that is awesome too. If you didn't bring your Bible, go ahead and turn your phone on or put it on airplane mode and then jump to the Bible app. I encourage you, we're going to dive into some scripture today and uh, really dive deep. But I love these Bibles because they have a section that you can take notes in as well. And so I just I highly recommend, big fan of taking notes and uh, highlighting things. And we're going to be underlining some stuff and putting some words into our Bible today as we dive into this story of uh, Sarai and Hagar as well. Um, so we're continuing on in our sermon series, uh, Jesus' Dysfunctional Family. And just, you know, just to clear the air, uh, raise your hand if you have a dysfunctional family. Okay, solid, solid, solid. Okay, glad you guys can admit that. Um, that's helpful. I'm not alone in that. Um, if you didn't raise your hand, maybe uh, there are some things that we need to work through. Um, but that's okay. Everyone has dysfunctional families, right? I think uh, Luke was telling that Josh says he puts the fun in dysfunctional. Yes, that is um, that's awesome. But we're continuing on in Jesus' dysfunctional family. And what's so helpful for us is to see that as we're reading through Scripture, sometimes we see all these different stories and we're like, man, I want to be a man of faith like this person or a woman of faith like this person. And sometimes we can hold them up in high regard, but we miss out on the entire story that their stories aren't perfect. Right? And even Jesus' family wasn't perfect. Jesus was perfect. Jesus is perfect, but his family was not. And if Scripture, the people of God, were honest about their families and about the dysfunction that happens in their families, then we also can be honest about the dysfunction in our families as well. That we can go to a God who, who sees broken families and acknowledge that he is a God that redeems broken, dysfunctional families. Not just the people in the Bible, but your families as well. And so we're going to dive deep into that and see what the Lord has for us this morning. But a couple of things for you guys. If you ever wanted to see the family line of Jesus, just out of curiosity, um, if you wanted to go and see that, you can go to Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 17, and you can jump to Luke chapter 3, verse 23 through 38. It gives an outline of these different names in the Bible that lead up to the person of Jesus. Or in Luke, it actually backtracks all the way from Jesus all the way back to Adam, uh, the very first uh, man. And so for me, as I've been reading through Scripture, it's been fun to read through the story of Scripture and to see these names and to go all the way back to Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 3 and be like, yes, checking off these names. And I actually put like a little check mark and be like, yep, I remember this story. I know this story. And seeing how the family of God continues to play out throughout Scripture. So we're going to dive deep into um, a story in that line of Jesus. But before we get there, I want to recap um, Pastor Josh's sermon from last week because he did a fantastic job. If you weren't here last week or you weren't watching online, I highly encourage you to go on to uh, our Apple podcast um, to listen to his sermon from last week. Um, it'll help us kind of understand uh, the family continuation in this story um, back in uh, Genesis chapter 3. 
But as we recap from last week, uh, we talked about uh, God's creation and God creating man in their own, in his own image. And then he places Adam and Eve in a garden. And as they're in this garden, they have this perfect relationship, not only with God, but with each other. And then they face some real temptation. They are told not to take from the tree of knowing good and evil. And the serpent deceives the two, Adam and Eve, and Eve takes of the fruit and gives it to Adam, who is right there with her the entire time. And then all hell breaks loose, right? They decide they think it's best to know what's good and evil on their own terms, rather than trusting in God's word, rather than trusting in the good and evil that God has shared and the knowledge that he has and trusting in who God is. Instead, they want to take good and evil and define it on their own terms and take of the fruit. And we see this theme of of deciding what's good and evil on their own terms all throughout Scripture. And so, unfortunately, they get banished from the garden. And the plot of the entire Scriptures is how does humanity get back in the garden with God? So Adam and Eve, they start having babies, right? They start uh, having kids, and they continue to multiply, and we see sin start to multiply along with these children of God over and over again. And it gets so point to, it's so bad to the point where uh, God causes a flood to eliminate all of humanity and restart creation all over again, but decides to save one family, Noah and his family, and to start over with them. Well, it turns out that plan didn't work out because uh, Noah and his family also fall into sin, and there's a lot of brokenness that continues to multiply. And so the story of the Bible follows this person, Noah, and his family through the line of his son, Shem, and that's where we get into the person of Abram, which we finally, which later on we say Abraham. Okay, so that's where we're at. So we're focusing on this family of Abram or Abraham. And before we jump into a specific text, into Genesis chapter 16, we kind of have to get like a running start. Like we kind of have to get some context before we dive deep into Genesis chapter 16. So I want you guys to go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 12. So just turn a couple pages back. Genesis chapter 12. First times that we see God give Abram a promise. This is what he says. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. Go ahead and underline that or highlight that. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I want you to go ahead and underline, I will make you into a great nation. And then on the side, if you have space, I want you to write the word promise there. This is a promise that God gives to Abram saying, I'm going to make you into a great nation. The way that you make someone into a great nation is that you start having babies. And then those babies end up growing up, falling in love, having a family, and start making babies of themselves. And then those babies end up growing up. You see the process? It keeps going, right? It continues to multiply to a point where it is a great nation. And God is saying, that is going to be for your family, Abram. That's the blessing. Okay? So, let's go a couple pages past that. We're going to go into Genesis chapter 15, starting at verse 5. So, turn a couple pages to Genesis chapter 15, 5, and 6. And this is another promise that God gives to Abram. He takes him outside, 
And he says this, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. I love this poeticness of this. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Gosh, I love leaving like the city and going out when there are no lights, right? Light pollution has destroyed seeing the lights. And when you go up and you see all these different stars and you're just amazed by all these amazing stars that God has created in the sky. And he says, Abram, go out there and count. Count those stars if you can count them. That's what your offspring is going to look like. And in order to do that, you need to start having babies, right? You need to continue to multiply. This is the promise. So I want you guys to underline where it says, uh, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. You see, Abram believed that God is a God who actually gets things done and falls, uh, he fulfills his promises. So I want you to underline, he credited to him as righteousness, and I want you to also put the word promise there. This promise that the, when you look up at the sky and you count the stars, that's what your offspring will look like. What an incredible promise. What an incredible promise that generations are going to follow after Abraham and on and on and on. Now, this is important. So as we get into chapter 16, when we start at Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 16, what we have is a 10-year gap in those four chapters, okay? Ten years happen when God and Abram have a conversation of, I will make you into a great nation. And now he's reminding him of this promise saying, you're going to have as many offspring, as many as the stars. And there's 10 years in between that gap. So now we're going to jump into Genesis chapter 16. And we're going to start at verse 1. Now, Sarai, first sentence, I love this. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Okay, let's pause there. Ten years, the promise, I will make you into a great nation. If you look up at the stars and count them, that's how many your offspring are going to be. And ten years later, we get to the sentence, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Dude, what the heck? Are you kidding me? Ten years, God? I've been waiting ten years. I've been checking over and over and over again. And God, I've been praying over and over and over again. And even says in Scripture that Abram believed him. And it credited to him as righteousness. He has been faithful over and over and over again. And ten years have gone. Ten years is a long time. That's a long time to wait. And it says, had borne him no children. And here's where things get dicey. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Everyone say Hagar. There you go. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. This actual word uh, uh, definition is actually, the Lord has, has shut my womb. The Lord has shut my womb. And then she says this, go, Abram, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Well, that, that will work for sure. Totes. Yeah. The God of the universe that has created the stars and the sky and the sun and the moon and all of creation goes to Abram and says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Abram probably grew up hearing stories of the faithfulness of God over and over again. And, and unfortunately, Sarai wanted to speed up the promise 
of God. She becomes impatient. And it's understandable, 10 years of waiting to be able to have kids as they continue to get old, it is hard to become patient in the midst of waiting. But then the way that she frames verse 2, she says, the Lord has kept me from having children. The Lord has shut my womb. There is hurt that is happening in the family of Abram. And then she says, I want you to go sleep with Hagar, my slave, so I can build a family through her. More family tension. Here we go. Oh, man, it's boiling up. So Abram uh, listened to his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she, Hagar, knew that she was pregnant, she, being Hagar, began to despite her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong that I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Notice how Sarai says, you are responsible for the wrong that I am suffering. I want you to go and underline that. It's very similar to the temptation that Adam and Eve face in the garden, right? Sarai thinks she knows what's best for her and for her family. She knows what she thinks is best. She thinks the good and evil in her own mind is better than the promises of God. And so she says, I'm going to fast track this method of creating a great nation, of being as numerous as the stars in the sky, and use my slave as a tool to be able to get to the promises that I want to happen. Right? She's taking from the fruit of knowing good and evil and continuing to create a sense of problems. And now she's saying, Abram, it's your fault now for doing this, right? The, the, the woman that you gave me to be took from the fruit, right? There's that continuous blaming that we see in Genesis chapter 3. So I want you to go ahead on the side and put Genesis 3, temptation, on the side of that. You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. And now Hagar hates Sarai. She hates her. She's been a slave that's been removed out of Egypt, placed into Abram's family, and now her body is being used as a tool to try to fulfill the promises of God. We live in a world that continues to use people over and over and over again. We sometimes see people as a tool to get to the things that we want most. Sarai doesn't even think about the person of Hagar. He just, she just sees her as a body. Maybe you haven't felt used physically, but maybe you've felt controlled emotionally, maybe spiritually, maybe in conversations with some of your family members. People twist words around to take advantage of situations. And now Hagar hates Sarai. We, we tend to use people as a tool for our own goals. And, and now Abram says, do with her whatever you think is best. Sarai's track record is not good at all. 
to, to put trust into her to make this decision is, again, going back to the tree of knowing good and evil and saying, whatever you think is good in your eyes, go and do that. And she mistreats her. So underline, do with her whatever you think best. And also put a temptation. Genesis 3. And spoiler alert, just for those of you guys that haven't read further on, uh, this story is one of the few stories in the Old Testament. Well, actually, no, there's a lot of stories that don't end well. But specifically within two people is a story that actually never gets fully resolved. It's a story that we see conflict happen over and over and over again between Sarai and Hagar that we never see them hug it out or have tears and say, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, me too, yeah, everything's great. This is a story that doesn't end well. And maybe as you think about your own families, you know that story a little bit too well. Maybe it's been some trauma that's happened years ago or a situation that just feels weird, like there's something in the air when you guys get together that you just haven't been able to talk about, and it just feels like the relationship isn't what it was. What happens when there's no reconciliation between God's people? This word reconciliation is like, like two magnets where they're off like on separate sides and now being brought back together. What happens when we deal with family when we deal with relationships that feel like they're so far from each other. Let's keep reading. Genesis chapter 7, or sorry, chapter 16, verse 7, it says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. Uh, I call this the first woman at the well. Uh, it was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. We've heard that before, right? The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael. He will be a wild donkey of a man. You imagine someone calling your kids a wild donkey of a person? Ooh, yikes. Um, sorry. Uh, his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all of his brothers. I want you to underline where it says, Hagar, this is what the Lord says, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? When Adam and Eve take of the fruit of knowing good and evil, they open their eyes and they realize that they're both naked. They're like, like trying to cover up. And then they cover themselves up and hear that the Lord is walking in the garden. And the first thing that they do is do what? They hide. And the first thing that God says to Adam and to Eve, he asks them, where are you? In the midst of sin, in the midst of brokenness and unright relationships, we tend to run from the God who tries to fix everything and knows that he can fix everything and will fix everything. And we have a God in the midst of our brokenness and in our sin that continues to chase after us and says, where are you and where are you going? You have nowhere else to run, Hagar. 
You're a pregnant woman that's trying to run back to Egypt, back to what you think is comfortable, even though it is dangerous out there for a woman to be alone, especially a pregnant woman who is alone, lest she go back to Egypt and raise her son, who is also the son of Abram, under false gods. The angel of the Lord knows that there is no place for her to run, and he invites her back into the family of Abram. Not so that she can get mistreated again by Sarai, even though that's probably a real reality. God is inviting her back because there is a promise made specifically for her. And this is the promise, that your descendants, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. This promise that's given to Abram is now given to Sarai and said, I will increase your descendants so that they are too numerous to count. So I want you to underline that, and I want you to put the word promise next to it. This is a promise that God gives to Sarai. And you shall name his son, you shall name him Ishmael. Ishmael. Ishmael, meaning the God who sees. Let's keep reading. So she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This might be the first time in her life that someone has ever actually saw her. Abram and Sarai saw her as a body. But when the Lord sees her, he sees her. God sees you. God sees you. If you get nothing out of this message, which I hope you do, I hope you get this. That in the midst of brokenness, when the world uses you like a tool, when you feel broken, when you feel like you are no good, God sees you. And we get to see a God who sees us. That is why the well was called Bir Lahairoi. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. I want you to underline the, you are a God who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. And just like Josh did last week, I want you to put a cross there. I want you to put a cross there. This is a Jesus moment where Jesus is approaching Hagar, and she gets to see God who sees her. Even though this story doesn't end well, even though five chapters later there's tension again between Hagar and Sarai, now named Sarah, and she kicks her out of the house, and they end up fleeing to another place for them to start their family again. God continues to show up in the midst of sin and brokenness and unright relationships, and he reminds her that he is a God who sees. He is a God who sees and brings reconciliation, even when it feels like there's not reconciliation. 
This is a theme that we see throughout Scripture over and over again. Because as we get into the next book after Genesis, next book after Genesis is Exodus. Good job. Thank you. Uh, Exodus chapter 3 goes like this. He goes, sorry, the Lord approaches Moses. Uh, He's like in this burning bush. It's consuming. It's like on fire. So it's like freaking Moses out. And this is what the Lord says. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. During this time, it's this reversal where instead of Sarai, the people of God, mistreating this Egyptian, now these Egyptians are mistreating the people of God. And now they are enslaved, and God is going to do something about this to bring about reconciliation. He says, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, all the ites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and once again we have a God who sees. I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Jesus. We continue to see a God who sees in Scripture over and over and over again, and even more so in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus steps into the scene in his ministry, and he actually sees people. It says he sees them and has compassion on them, and he does something about it. There's another time when there's another woman at this well that Jesus approaches who's broken, who's had family issues, who's had five husbands, and she's in this cycle of sin over and over again. And Jesus specifically walks through Samaria, a place where no one would want to go, and approaches this well and approaches this woman, and he sees her. Friends, we have a God who sees us. Who, who sees us in the brokenness and at the same time sees us when we use other people as tools, as a means to an end. And we have a God that redeems us in the midst of that brokenness. We have a God that sees the brokenness of the world as he hangs on a cross with nails in his hands and in his feet, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus is a God who sees, who sees me, and who sees you. And this is the beautiful thing about reconciliation, because Jesus has brought us back into right relationship with the Father. We have a God of reconciliation, which means he wants us to be a people of reconciliation as well. E- even though we might have conflict in our families, Maybe years of baggage have just continued to pile on and on and on. To be a people of reconciliation means that we also get to do the hard work that Jesus has already lifted for us. He's inviting us to be a people that brings back right relationships with each other. So as the band comes up and plays some music, we're going to take some time to reflect. And I have three questions for us as we reflect on the story of Hagar and Sarah or Sarai as we reflect on our own families, maybe it's not families, maybe it's coworkers or friends, maybe it's your kids. And I want you to reflect on these three questions. What family members do you still have unresolved conflicts with? 
in the midst of conflict, how is God seeing you and your situation right now? And what is he calling you to do? And more importantly, what will you do about it? Let's take a minute to reflect on these.